So if you've joined Sedaris over the last year, or perhaps this is your first Sunday, um, welcome to this tradition that we do. We uh, spend each summer in an assortment of the Psalms, and we're going to do that each and every year for maybe, uh, for well, until we're done. So there's 150 Psalms, so it'll take about 10 to 15 years, okay? So uh, stick around. You're not going to want to miss this. It's going to be great, and we, we're going to get through all these Psalms eventually. This summer, we'll probably just touch on seven or eight, but... Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. I'm really excited for this, um, for this uh, understanding of the Psalms that we're going to press into today. Um, and we're uh, in the Psalms uh, primarily because here at Sedaris, we um, are all about considering Jesus. That's what we do. Um, maybe you found us today by one of our street signs, and our street signs, they say, have you considered Jesus on him? Now, that's not an antagonistic question, although it can be construed as such. It's a really honest question. This is what we do uh, each and every week here on Sundays, what we do in our groups throughout the week, and we would argue that an honest consideration of Jesus is a quest that each and every person is on throughout their entire life. And when we use that word consider, what we can often do um, is we uh, can intellectualize it, which is a piece of what it means to consider, right? Like when we consider something, we're reasoning and we're, we're making rational thoughts about it. But consideration goes so much deeper uh, because here at Sedaris, we really think that consideration happens with our whole bodies, including our hearts, including our hearts. And that's why we're in this, um, this sermon series, which is focused on the Psalms, because the Psalms are prayers. The Psalms are prayers. Uh, they're written about 500 to 1,000 years ago. They're really old prayers. And, um, and uh, Israelite boys and girls, as they grew up, they would go to the Psalms, and, and they would learn how to pray through the Psalms. This is a prayer manual of sorts. Um, but it's also much, much more than a prayer manual. Uh, you see, Michelangelo, when, when he, uh, wanted, when he uh, got asked to paint the Sistine Chapel in 1508, he had a huge background of art that brought him to the point where he could do that. He didn't just wake up one morning with the skills and the talents to create such an experience like, like the Sistine Chapel. In fact, what, what he actually probably started his artistic endeavors as a child, right, with rudimentary drawings, maybe even just in the sand or on paper, which moved to painting, which moved to sculpting and all sorts of different media. And then over the course of his lifetime, he had different projects, which he engaged his artistic abilities and, and honed his skills in more and more and more and more until eventually, after three decades, he had the expertise to create the masterpiece of the Sistine Chapel, which many argue is the, the most uh, beautiful and engaging chapel that's ever been created. He did this over, uh, after three decades, it was a masterpiece. In the same way, these psalms are masterpieces. These aren't just the rulers offering prayers or writing down prayers to increase their own vanity. They're not trying to increase their own power. These are the results of a lifetime's that are spent in prayer. In fact, when they were written, they were so powerful and so profound that they were put to music so that they could be sung and embraced by the community. This is what the Psalms are. Many of them are still sung today. The Psalms are gonna help us consider Jesus with our hearts, with our, with our emotions, with our wills, with our desires. That's really what they're all about. 
because considering Jesus with our heart is crucial to actually being a mature follower of Jesus. Because if, if you think about it, any friendship that you have, that you don't bring your emotions into it, you don't bring your desires into that friendship and share it, any one of those friendships that you have is not a friendship, it's an acquaintance. That's the reality of it. And so we hope this summer to move past Jesus just being an acquaintance. We hope to move into the area of Jesus being a friendship, a relationship. That's what we're doing together. Our hope is that these psalms will inspire us to pray, to consider Jesus with our hearts as we engage the psalmist's hearts. Because what's crazy is as we're going to see some of these psalms heart, psalmist's hearts, we're going to be surprised, like, whoa, that's really in the Bible? That's a really dark thought. That is really surprising. But what we find is that as these authors of the Psalms, they engaged God with their honest emotions and their honest desires, they found more life. They found comfort. They found joy. They found security. They brought their, 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 their hopes and dreams, their fears, their failures, their relationships, their broken relationships to God, and they found life on the other side. And so all you need in order to pray are some hopes and some dreams, some failures, some shortcomings, some relationships, some broken relationships. And as you bring your heart to God, in those, you can experience the same comfort, the same joy, the, the same courage, the same boldness that we're going to find these authors uncovering in the Psalms. That's what we're really concerning ourselves with over the next couple of months, okay? And there's two primary ways that we're going to do that. Like, how does that actually happen? So it's great that they're doing it, but how do we kind of tap in to that same thing? We do two things with the Psalms, okay? I'm just going to discuss these very briefly so you can write them down in case you want to start going into the Psalms this week so you can start using them. The first one is we personalize the Psalms. We personalize the Psalms. And, and that is we, we, we seek to understand the original understanding or, or the original situation and circumstance that the psalmist was in. We seek to wrap our heads around that. And then we imagine scenarios that might be the same in our lives. Um, I'm a guy that tends to repress his emotions. I don't know if there's any of you guys out there. Uh, but what I find is as I wrap my mind around their circumstances, and then I, uh, real, and then I f kind of associate and personalize it to my own circumstances, I realize that I, in fact, have the same emotions that they have. And I can process those emotions with God. Sometimes it works the other way around. Maybe you start with emotions, and you can see those emotions reflected in the Psalms, and you can personalize it by wrapping your head around what they're going through, and then all of a sudden you know that, oh, I need to talk to God about this. This is what we hope to do. This is one of the main ways we personalize the Psalms in the hope that they can bring us the same life. The second thing that we do is we, um, we ask, what are they telling us about Jesus? What are they telling us about Jesus? And we can do that even though they were written 500, some 1,000 years before Jesus, because Jesus told us to look for him in the Psalms. He told us to look for him there. He told his original disciples to look for him in the Psalms. And so that's what we do as well. And, and so we're going to do two examples of that today as we go through our Psalm. All right, we personalize them and we look for Jesus in them. All right. Okay, so let's move on to our psalm for the day, okay? So that's our, our greater sermon series, what we're going to do this summer. Let's move on to our psalm for today. We're in Psalm chapter 2, 
Well, Psalm 2. Um, and what's uh, interesting about Psalm 2 is it's not necessarily a prayer, although there's pieces of it uh, that are clearly the product of prayer. Um, but it is not a prayer, but it works with Psalm chapter 1 to function as an introduction to prayer. And, and, and what Psalm chapter 1 does, Psalm 1 does, is it really is wisdom literature. It tells us why it's good to pray. It says, um, ready for it, it says that the wise person is a praying person. The wise person is a praying person. That's really what Psalm 1 is all about. The applications there can be really deep and challenging for us, right? But Psalm chapter 2 is a little bit different. It's, it comes from the biblical, um, biblical genre of prophecy. Prophecy. Shift gears a little bit. Now we are dealing with a genre of prophecy. And uh, to illustrate what prophecy is, is hoping to accomplish, I'll tell you a story. Okay, um, About a year ago now, a little over a year ago, the weekend before 4th of July, Christy and I, we hooked up a U-Haul to our outback, and we drove across the country from Denver to be here. Um, we encountered a lot of challenges in that trip, such as uh, uh, car sickness, uh, bears, uh, overheated radiators, very similar things that the original pioneers faced. Uh, very similar radiators. It's always breaking down in your wagon, you know? Um, Subaru Outback is a wagon. Look at that. Hey. Um, so we, but we showed up. We got here. It took several days, but we got here. We showed up smelling like vomit, extremely tired, and we immediately went out to Whidbey Island because Christy's family was throwing a get-together at a beach house. We love the beach. Uh, we were from Denver, so we'd never really encountered the beach much before. And uh, we were like, what, what's going on here? There's all this, like, the water kept moving. And they were like, oh, those are waves. We were like, oh, we've heard of those. That's really cool. Why is the water, like, coming at us right now? They're like, oh, that's the tide. We're like, oh, this is what we've heard about. And then, of course, there's just the reality that sand gets absolutely everywhere, right? Like, everywhere. There's no, it's just everywhere. Well, we, we slept that night in the beach house, and for some reason, our one-year-old just kept on waking up screaming, and we couldn't figure it out. She wasn't hungry, her diaper was dry, and we could tell because now they have those like lines on the diapers that change colors if the inside's wet. It's actually kind of cool uh, technology, right? Um, but we couldn't figure it out, so we'd soothe her back to sleep only to be woken back up again. Uh, like less than an hour later. This happened all night. Finally in the morning, uh, we, all of us were up again, and I was changing uh, her diaper, and I opened it, and just a shovelfuls of sand came out. <laughs> Poor girl, right? See, there was a reality taking place there that I couldn't see, and prophecy is primarily concerned with that. It's primarily concerned with uncovering present realities that we can't see, although we may experience it. Sometimes we can have a connotation of prophecy that, that biblical prophecy is about God revealing what his salvation plan in the future is all about. And, and that happens too, but primarily when you take prophecy and all of its examples in, in the Bible, you see that it's primarily concerned with uncovering present realities so that the people of God can react differently, making those things apparent so that they can make adjustments. What if I had a prophet that said, hey, look in the diaper for that sand? I would have experienced much more rest that night. 
And so Psalm 2 identifies the sand that's in culture that we can't see, but maybe it's in all of our clothes and it's making us really uncomfortable. Maybe we experience it, but we haven't put a name to it yet. Psalm chapter 2 is going to help us put a name to it. And what happens when uh, Psalm chapter 2 puts a name to it, in this introduction of the book of prayers, the conclusion that the author's trying to get us to is that we must pray. We must pray. And this is what I think is, is what we need to hear today, because I think if a, a lot of us are coming today, and, and when we think of the concept of prayer, we, we say, you know what, that's something that I should do. That's something that I should be doing. That's something I should do. And, and you know what, the shoulds in our life, they highlight the actions that we lack vision for. You hear that? The shoulds, that's worth the price of admission right there, uh, which I guess is free. But the shoulds in our life highlight the actions that we lack vision for, that we need a prophet to tell us why those things are actually musts to motivate us towards them. And that's what Psalm chapter chapter 2 is going to do today. All right? All right, so... Let's uh, dive into it together. Let's go, uh, let's start with at the beginning, because that's where our author, uh, which is attributed to David, King David, he wrote a ton of these psalms. That's what our author starts with. He starts by uncovering this reality like a prophet. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's the reality that's taking place here? What's the reality that's actually happening? It's a rebellion, it's a rebellion. The picture that we get right here um, in, in David, in, that David's painting for us is that a king is coming to a throne and all of the surrounding rulers and peoples are conspiring on how they might get him out along with God. Now, David was the second king of Israel um, and the nations had already done this with the first king, King Saul. They had killed him. And now we have the rest of the nations, they're the same nations coming together and saying, okay, round two, how are we going to get this guy? Now, now this is true in David's age, but it's also true in our greater context of Seattle as well. Our greater context of Seattle is where the, the peoples, the majority of peoples are actually seeking to get out from underneath the rule of God as king. If you don't believe me, just uh, take Jesus' gospel message out to the streets. Uh, Try to tell people that, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. He's going to be here soon to rule over us. And what you need to do is to repent and believe the gospel. This is Jesus' stump speech that he went around the countryside saying. I don't think that you're going to be very warmly welcomed. If you do have some positive response to that, you need to come and talk to me because uh, you you got the juice then, you know? Um, (laughs) But in reality, um, I think that you're going to experience something much different. I know that I experience uh, pressure and pushback when I do this with people, even people that I know and love. Okay? So this is the reality that's taking place in Seattle, and it's helpful to understand how exactly this is happening, what this actually looks like. 
And, and we can see that in verse uh, 1 here. Why do the nations rage? And then that further gets described and defined as, why do the peoples plot in vain? There's a plotting that's happening. There's something very reasonable and rational attached to it. This isn't a riot where people are, are rioting. There's a reasonable and rational arguments that the majority has against the ruler and the lordship of God. This is the reality that our prophet's trying to uncover for us, and it gets, it gets sharpened even further when we look at the beginning of the introduction. In, in Hebrew, uh, what you have to do is keep your eye out for wordplay. The Hebrew authors loved wordplay because in a sea of words that you can draw attention to what you really want people to focus on when you look at wordplay. Also, I think there are a bunch of dads doing dad jokes, too. So, but here we go, verse 1 and, and chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word there translated meditates is the same word that's translated plot in Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the people's plot in vain? And so here's the, the big picture that our prophet's painting for us. You ready for it? That there's two kinds of people in this world. There are those who seek to meditate under the word of God. And are, there are those who plot on how they can get out from under it. They meditate on how they might get out from under it. That's what our prophet here, prophet David, is trying to, to get us looking towards. Now, um, a couple decades ago, uh, larger corporations started matching their employee gifts to 501c3 corporations. Um, uh, if, if you work for corporations, hey, never hurts to ask, right? Um, but, uh, and so I, I worked at a, a church over the past, well, I worked at a church in four, for four years in a role of operations, and one of my many things that I did was that it was my job to show these larger corporations that we were 501c3 compliant through whichever portal they had created to make sure of that. Um, so I dot all the I's, I'd cross all the T's in order for their gifts to be matched to our church. Um, but what I realized was that over the years, these corporations kept on dropping off. We kept on becoming ineligible for these matching gifts. And I was really curious as to why, and it turned out that these organizations, um, they weren't getting rid of their policy to match to 501c3s altogether. They had just amended their policies to say that they would no longer match to religious 501c3s. It's very plotting, taking counsel, together. I mean, these are large corporations. I won't tell you their names, but one of them rhymed with Smoogle, okay? Like, <laughs> these are large corporations that, that are saying, you know what, we will match the 501c3s, but not the church. Not the church. Um, this week at, uh, in, in our fellowship group, uh, well, this happens on, on the macro scale, this plotting and this taking counsel together, but it also happens on the micro scale. And, and this week at, at fellowship groups, uh, uh, one of these young ladies, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this, I'm sorry. She gave me permission to say this story, but I don't want to just throw, like, let, be too uh, cavalier with it, because it's still a story and they're important. 
but a, a, a young lady just in tears was sharing how she had petitioned her coworkers to meditate upon how God's way to think about their work would be a, a, a better and more profound and life-giving a way to engage their work. And she was in tears as she was processing the blowback that she received as a result. Her coworkers uh, were, were, were plotting and pushing back against this greater vision, and it was great to come around her and encourage her and say, you know what, you can keep doing what you're doing. This is just the setbacks that you're going to experience here in this world. The, the world, the crowds, the masses, they see those who are authentically living and meditating under the word of God and their desire to live out from under it means that they will pressure the people of God both to um, give up and give with the times and then they'll also intimidate them to stop all, all together and to be quiet. This is the reality that actually comes into play when we, we start realizing that we have two different kinds of people here in this world. But the question is why? Why is this reality happening? Why is it taking place? And uh, our psalmist here, David, lets us know in 2 verse 3. He says, this is the, the uh, message of the people who no longer want to be under the role, the, the rule of God and his king. Let us burst their bonds apart, they say, and cast away their cords from us. For some reason, they have conceived of God's rule in their life as slavery, as bonds and cords, as shackles and ropes. But we just sang two songs that talk about the freedom in God, the freedom that we have. And, and this is primarily because we have uh, two different groups defining freedom in a very, very different way. And that has been like that for 3,000 years since this psalm was written. The, the first way uh, that, that, these, that the people outside of the rule of God are defining freedom goes something like this. Freedom is no one tells me what to do. Freedom is I make my own choices in my life. Freedom is what uh, the United States accomplished after we threw off British rule. That's why freedom and Independence Day are really conflated topics. Freedom and independent, independence are very conflated and overlapping topics, although they're two very different things. Freedom. Freedom is saying um, I have my own subjective experience of reality, and no one who uh, ha has, hasn't experienced that, anyone who hasn't experienced that, can't speak to what I should do in life because they don't know what I've gone through. If you conceive of freedom in this way, um, God's rule is going to seem like bondage. It's going to seem like slavery. That's the reality of it. But the Christian notion of freedom is very, very different. The Christian notion of freedom is I have the liberty to pursue the ultimate good in life and that ultimate good can only be achieved with certain limits and boundaries. Certain limits and certain boundaries in life. Um, I'll give you a couple examples of this. Uh, my wife and I have had the freedom and the liberty to pursue a great marriage in life because we put the, the limit on our marriage of who else we're going to interact romantically with. That is no one. <laughs> now, that's not oppressive. That's secure and safe. 
and life-giving. And there's actually a host of other limits that we have on our marriage that invite us into different aspects of the life of marriage and what that brings. Um, a, a second example is I have the freedom to pursue a somewhat healthy um, body because I've imposed the limits in my life of a somewhat healthy diet and somewhat regular exercise. These are the limits that I've put on so that I can pursue a greater good, uh, a greater good in my life. Now, some people in life, they don't, they don't have the liberty to pursue uh, a great marriage or uh, the, uh, the good of marriage or the good of health. Um, that's part of what this world of suffering is. But they, everyone has the opportunity to pursue the ultimate goal, good of God and the life that that can bring as well. But our democratic notion of freedom works against these ideas of limits and boundaries imposed by an external person in our lives. But why is that? Because if we really understand who God is as a perfect creator, the one who created humanity, like he, he made us, maybe he knows how we tick. Maybe he knows how a life can be best lived and best enjoyed here on this earth. He's not a God that can't identify with us either. He lived a life of his own through the person of Jesus here on this earth too. So he's experienced it. But I think that a lot of the outside world that has fashioned these arguments against God's rule in their lives conceptualize of God's rule as, as a zoo where, where God takes people and he puts them in cages, uh, lions and, and tigers and bears. Oh my, no, cheap joke. Okay, no, but I think we've conceived of um, God as putting us in cages, but in reality, Christians are peacocks. I'm trying to ruin peacocks for you. Christians are peacocks. They don't sit in the cage in the zoo. Yes, they have limits and boundaries of the zoo itself, and don't focus on where the analogy breaks down, but there, there's a lot of freedom that a peacock has in a zoo, right? It can jump on concession stands, get some free food, it can follow kids hoping for bread. Christians are peacocks. They're not caged animals. And this is the, this is the understanding of the Christian life that, that I th and the freedom of Christian life that Christians have, but I think the outside world is really concerned and scared about we're peacocks. All right, so let's look for Jesus in this psalm right at the beginning here. There's a couple ways that Jesus comes out, but right at the beginning, we see that the nations are raging and plotting, and the kings and the rulers are taking counsel together to overthrow the anointed. And, and Jesus fulfills this role of the anointed king later. And we just did a sermon series over the last year where we walked through the whole book of Mark. And do you know where we saw the rulers actually starting to plot to overthrow Jesus? At the very beginning, at the very beginning, they started plotting. They plotted for three years until they finally got an opportunity where, where Judas told them, he said, here, this is where you can find Jesus alone. When he did that, they operated swiftly and quietly and secretly to execute their plan that they had fashioned, and it went flawlessly. You see that? They had been plotting against Jesus. 
All right, let's personalize this a little bit too. It's cool to personalize this psalm because we have an example of the first disciples personalizing this psalm. Back in Acts chapter 4, you, uh, you can turn there with me if you want, or I can just read it to you. In Acts chapter 4, Dave actually did a sermon on this when the church, the early church, the early disciples personalized this psalm for themselves a thousand years after it was written for them. You see, um, God had healed someone, and the disciples, the early disciples, they had used it as an opportunity to preach about Jesus, and then they got thrown in prison by the reigning authorities of the day. They just got thrown in prison there, and uh, then they were brought before those authorities. They were threatened. They were intimidated to stop, and they were released, and upon being released, this is what happened. This is Acts 4, verse 23. When they were released, They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, this is the quote of these first two verses, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, see he's the anointed one, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God. Boldness. See what's happening here? The disciples' first instinct to respond to this uh, overwhelming pressure to stop talking about Jesus was to pray was to pray. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, was to pray. Here we see that prayer is a natural response to people who are trying to witness to who Jesus is in this world. Prayer is a natural response of that witness. And so our first application goes something like this. If you're not praying in in life, it's an indication that you're not on mission. You're not actively witnessing to who Jesus is. See, a lack of prayer is a symptom of a deeper thing that's going on. And it's an invitation to wrestle with what that might be. Because witnessing of Jesus puts us in places that we feel like we're stretched to our complete capacities and complete abilities of who we are, that the only thing that we can do is look to God in dependent prayer upon him. That's, that, that's our first application here from this personalized side of this psalm. The second one is that when you do witness, uh, like the story I shared earlier, you're going you're gonna to experience pushback today. You're going to experience that pushback. It's going to look like one of two things. First, um, people are going to uh, ask you to give up. They're going to challenge you with with their notion of freedom, and they're going to try to persuade you with rational arguments and reasonable arguments that you should give up talking about these boundaries that you keep on talking about that Jesus created. You should give up. Then they'll say things like this. Just have sex with him. 
Stop being such a wet blanket and come out with us for the night. It's fine to spend all of your money on vacation after vacation after vacation. You earned it after all. You see, those who don't want to be under the word, the, the word and underneath the rule of God try to persuade those who want to be not to so that they don't feel that claim upon their own lives. They don't feel those limits and those boundaries upon their own lives. But the Christian life says, no, but when I live in, within these limits and boundaries that God has created, I start to experience life, life abundantly. The second way that this happens is that you will experience intimidation tactics to try to get you to be silent, whether that happens behind your back or whether it happens like it does to our poor street signs that we put out on the roads throughout the neighborhood of Wallingford each week. Just, just the, the, the amount of moving and I think one, someone must have taken a baseball bat to some, one of them recently, you know? Like, there's intimidation tactics that the world has at play to get the people of God to be quiet. That's, that's the simple reality of it. Now, why is that? It's because the, 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 there's a religion for the majority that they're operating by here in this world, and it's the religion of tolerance. The religion of tolerance says that we do not tolerate anything that would set up a limit or a boundary over somebody else. Anything. It's a religion that has its own leaders. It's a religion that has its own podcasts. It's a religion that has its own creeds. It has its own books. It even has its own heresies. It's the religion of the day. And that religion is very concerned with any religion that's contra to it. So the, the message of Jesus, that is you need to repent the kingdom of God, it's coming, just like this is the, the categories that Psalm 2 is. The kingdom of God is coming. We need to repent. And that really means changing your mind about what limits are useful and important in this world. You need to repent and come underneath these limits of God so that you can experience life again and you can be shielded from his judgment that's coming. That's what repentance is all about. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the fact that even though you operated outside of all those limits for so long, even, even though when you did that you hurt yourself and others to some pretty uh, incredible ways, even though you did that, now that you're, you're coming back in, you're putting your faith in Jesus, God overlooks all of that. He overlooks all of it. Repenting and believing the gospel, that's what this is all about. Okay, and what's in, insightful here now is the, the psalmist, the prophet, shifts gears and he shows us God's response to the rebellion. God's response, which he couldn't have uncovered without prayer. He saw God's response through prayer. This is why this is even a, a product of prayer in a lot of ways, even though it may not be a prayer itself. It says in verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Uh, this is really funny uh, because um, parents can understand this notion because they have similar uh, complete sovereignty over uh, children in their own uh, households and their own little kingdoms, I guess you could say, in a similar way, but not the same way, that God has sovereignty over all of creation. Um, every now and then I'll try to um, impose a boundary on my children, like stop shoving a cinnamon toast crunch up your nose, okay? And it'll lead to this huge rebellion, huge rebellion, 
of which they conceive of the notion that they can throw off my rule altogether. And when Christy and I will see this happen, we'll turn to each other and we'll just see the laughter in each other's eyes and we kind of turn our backs because we don't want to be too dismissive of this little rebellion that's so futile. It's so futile. Our kids can't come out from underneath our parenthood. This is the same notion, just like we can't come out from underneath our parents' parenthood in our lives. Creation, the world, the peoples, the nations, the kings, the rulers, they can't come out from underneath the lordship of God. It's futile, so he laughs. Now, this may come across as a little dismissive to you, um, and that's, that, that's okay, but don't worry, there's more. This isn't God's only response, okay? The rest of his response is recorded here. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. This is David talking now, but it's extended to Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a a potter's vessel. Now, this can seem like a lot of brimstone and fire here, but I want us to recognize something that's happening. God is waiting. His response is to send the anointed one, a ruler, When my kids rebel against me at home, I move in to try to kind of squash that rebellion pretty quick. Not God. God is waiting. Here we have a a picture of grace. And this ruler, we're going to see in, in the next verses, this ruler is primarily concerned with the other rulers, not necessarily the people's. God is waiting, and he's instated a ruler. He sent his anointed one in the name of Jesus to come deal with the other rulers that are continuing to take counsel within each other, continually influencing the masses, the majority of the population, to plot against and rage against God, to revolt and rebel. This is what this ruler is doing. This is what Jesus accomplished. He comes to earth. He goes to the cross to defeat rulers of Satan and sin so that the peoples might have the liberty, the freedom to pursue the ultimate good in life. If they would come within the limits and the boundaries that he set up, if they would repent of those. This is the core of the Christian gospel message, which is why This grace that we see here in these verses where God waits and he sends a graceful ruler that isn't going to rule over the peoples uh, with with wrath and fury, but instead is going to die for them to release them from their overpressive rulers. This is why the, the remainder of this psalm is a glimpse of the gospel. You could call it the gospel in incipient form. Look at it with me here. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You see that there? Serve the Lord with fear. Come within those limits and rejoice. That means there's something to be rejoiced about when we come within those limits. People are finding life. 
rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun. And in the context of of the day, the lesser rulers would come to the greater rulers and, and kiss the hand of the king, acknowledging that he is ruler and he is Lord, and they're not gonna plot against him or take counsel with other kings to overthrow him. This is an invitation for all of us. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is an invitation to submit to God. This is where we repent of our notions that we don't need limits and boundaries in life and acknowledge the fact that God is our perfect and loving creator who loves us more than anything and is primarily concerned that we might experience life in his name, joy, security, comfort in his name. Maybe today you're tired of living a life that has no limits and boundaries. That'd be understandable. That sounds really, really hard to me, honestly, to try to weigh these out for yourself. We just went through our Alpha course where, where several people were trying to weigh and sort through their own limits that they're trying to operate by and coming into con- contact with, with what God's limits are on life are, starting with he loves you and he wants you to have a relationship with him. That's why the the psalm closes like this, this last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed, happy, joyful. You see, God isn't necessarily validated when we come to him, although it makes him incredibly happy. Nothing makes God more happy than the people who he loves as coming to him and looking to have a relationship with him. I'm not even sure exactly why that is, but he's obsessed with us and he loves us and he wants to have a relationship with us and it makes him incredibly, incredibly happy when we do. That is true. But something else happens too. We experience blessedness. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We experience blessedness and happiness when we don't look for refuge in a place, but when we look for refuge in the person of Jesus. That's when we can start to experience life, when we can start to experience courage, when we can start to experience safety and nourishment. That's why this Bible is here, to guide us in that pursuit. That's why we teach from it each and every Sunday. It's a book that is nourishment for those who are hungry. It's a book that is safety for those who are scared. It's a, it's a book that is life for those who feel like they're dying. This is why we teach from the Bible. This is why we come under it every Sunday. This is why we encourage you guys to meditate day and night under it and to help other people do the same because we find life here, joy, satisfaction. We're we're really excited to engage this project of prayer over the next few months, to engage God with our hearts and our emotions. Maybe you uh, could start by just engaging uh, God with your emotion of, I'm scared to give you the power to put limits in my life, God. That's understandable. That's often where this considering with the heart starts for people nowadays. Maybe you're scared. That's okay. Don't worry. You'll be a peacock. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm thankful for my friends who've come to hear your word today, who have come to sit under your word and meditate on it, God. Uh, Right now, we just count that, that you gave them the courage to do that and brought them here. You gave them that courage to walk through these doors, 
You pushed through all the opposition that is in front of them each and every Sunday morning to bring them here into this room, and we praise you as the good creator who's waiting for us to come to him and empowering us to do it. Nothing here is happening by accident this morning, God. Lord, I just pray right now that, that uh, your word would speak today. Lord, I pray that anything that I've spoken that may not have come from your word, I pray that it would vanish, but I also pray that you would give my friends the courage to bring it to me so that I can address that in my own life, God. We're thankful for you. We're excited for how we can learn that we must pray so that we can experience life in you. Please show us how we can continue to reveal our hearts to you this week and in the weeks to come, God. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.